the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all. It's all about pride. Let's go! Virgin Radio Pride. I think I was eight years old when I was trying to work out uh, what this was. There wasn't, you know, the ready access to the internet, and there wasn't, you know, anyone else in my community at home. And I remember being eight and trying to work out whether this was something that affected just me. I, I came to the wrong conclusion. I mean, it was much later when I realised that actually there are other people that feel that way. Not everybody will be thrilled that you feel that way, but there are there are others out there. Jamie Wallace became the first out-trans MP in March 2022. Half a century ago, the idea that anyone from the LGBT plus community would feel welcome within Westminster's powerful walls seemed remote. And yet today, there seem to be gay MPs everywhere you look. So what was it like to be a queer politician during this transformation? And did their lives differ from their successors? And in those hallowed rooms, how much of a difference were they able to make to their LGBT plus community? I'm Callum McDonald, and this is Pride in Politics. Look back through history, and LGBT people have always walked in the corridors of power, whether we've been aware of them or not. Kings, queens, lords and ladies, look closely enough and you'll find those who historians have described, perhaps with willful ignorance, as having very close friendships or as just gals being pals, or, everyone's favourite, roommates. Chris Bryant has been the Labour MP for Rhonda since 2001. In 2010, he entered into a civil partnership with his now-husband. It was the first civil partnership to be conducted in the Houses of Parliament. He has extensively researched queer political history and has written a book on gay MPs who opposed the appeasement of Hitler. It's difficult to say that there were gay politicians in the past because that's a, an anachronism, it's a very modern word, but there were certainly men who had sex with men in Parliament. Two were arrested in 1834 for playing around with other men in toilets near Westminster, and both of them got off because very important figures in the land decided to defend them, even though at the time the death penalty was the maximum sentence you could get for homosexual acts of any kind. And in 1835, two men, two servants, James Pratt and John Smith, were hanged for for sodomy. And the law wasn't changed until 1861. In their all-male environment, historically, the rich and powerful, lords and those in authority, could lean on that power and wealth to afford a little more protection and secrecy than the man on the street. The one thing that protected you more than anything else was if you could afford the luxury of privacy. Most of political life, right up until the Second World War, was men spending all their time with men. But, you know, either in the Parliament, because there were only men until 1918 and we changed the law, or in your gentleman's club, or if you were in the army, that was all bachelors as well, because you weren't allowed to marry without permission of your commanding officer. So you could live an entirely male life without any sense of suspicion. And if you were wealthy, you could kind of manage to have a cloak of secrecy over the kind of life that you were leading. But there was always the danger that you would get into trouble. You know, if you wandered around in St. James's Park at night looking for company, let's put it that way, Quite a few politicians got into trouble when they they were caught in the bushes. 
It's always difficult to know exactly what other people knew because there's knowing and knowing. But you could never be explicit about your homosexuality, even if you did jokes about being camp and effeminate and things like that. There were characters like Ronnie Cartland, who was Barbara Cartland's younger brother. He undoubtedly had affairs with a series of of different men during the 1930s. He probably felt terribly anguished about it because he was quite religious as well. But he was passionate in wanting to fight Hitler, but partly, I think, because he knew that Hitler was arresting people like him in Germany and sending them off to concentration camps and many where many of them died. So there's been a tradition of men who had sex with men <laughs> over the centuries, I think, in British politics. But it was, you know, up until 1967, of course, it was completely illegal. The Sexual Offenses Act of 1967 had decriminalised homosexual acts between men, but their world was still fraught with complexity. Social stigma and heavy-handed policing meant much of gay life and culture was still forced to operate underground. Plain-clothed officers would chat up gay men around gay venues and cruising spots and then arrest them for importuning, that is, requesting or offering sexual services, especially as a prostitute. Matthew Paris is gay and was once assaulted by thugs whilst cruising on Clapham Common. In 1979, he became a new backbench Conservative MP as part of Thatcher's governing party. He was an MP until 1986, then became a columnist for The Times. I think the situation in the 70s and 80s was that some people were out and proud and very visible and not afraid to be visible, but they were the tip of a huge iceberg of people who were not out and who were either very repressed or frightened or just no, not knowing what to do about it. So you'll, you'll see plenty, plenty of, um, of visible gay people who seem to be living a, quite an open life, actually all through from the 1960s onwards, but they were only the minority. The risk of exposure in politics, if you were, for instance, a, an MP, was as great or greater, and the penalties of exposure were greater because it would become a news story. So there was perhaps even even greater fear uh, amongst politicians and, and perhaps some of the people who worked for politicians. The 1970s presented different challenges for lesbians. There's never been a specific criminal offence of lesbianism, but social stigma was persistent. Well, in terms of society, I think it's all a bit like Queen Victoria thought women can't. I think gay men had a much harder time in terms of legality and persecution by the law, but I think gay women were ignored. And I think that even the early um, gay movements like the Campaign for Homosexual Equality at CHE, there were very few women ever consulted or ever involved, and if they were involved, they were on the sidelines. Um, and it was often as part and parcel of the feminist movement that lesbians were given a voice. I think lesbians on the own didn't have much of a voice and didn't, didn't, uh, didn't have much of an identity. Women had their place, and, and that included lesbians. That's the voice of Myrie Todd. In 1975, the Liberal Party, today known as the Liberal Democrats, passed a party conference motion to support full equality for homosexuals. 
They were the first UK political party to do so. But up until 1976, there were no publicly out MPs. That was until Myrie's mother, Babs, met Maureen Cahoon, the Labour MP for Northampton North. My mother was a, a very intelligent woman and very incisive and very questioning. I should think Maureen found her fascinating. My mother had been an actress in her time, so she was, she, she was very charming. And Maureen was one of the kindest, most open people I've ever known. And very funny, but also very direct and very committed to justice. Would you like to say to thousands of women listeners who imagine that they're enjoying life at the kitchen sink? Women unite. You have nothing to lose but your kitchen sinks. They met when my, my mother in 1975 was a feminist activist and she was lobbying for the sex discrimination bill. And she met Maureen because she lobbied her. I think a meeting of minds. Maureen and Babs moved in together in East London in 1976. They never hid their lives, but when the tabloids heard of their relationship, the media's response was predictable. I drew the cartoon for the housewarming party. It was just a kid's invitation. And it was basically a cartoon with two female symbols intertwined. One was Maureen, one was Babs. That was the invitation. Somebody leaked that to Nigel Dempster of the Daily Mail, and it was at that point that he published an expose of Maureen. And it was a witch hunt by the Daily Mail that was, was absolutely ghastly. They were exposed to the worst of the press, you know, cameras through windows and back gardens and following myself and my sister to school. And I think the other thing that Maureen suffered, I mean, she was trying to continue to be a very good constituency MP, but she did not receive the support from her party locally, and she did not receive support in Westminster. I think that it did affect her, you know, by the the mid-1970s, 1977, 1978, when she was still an MP, she was very lonely in the House of Commons. A year later, Maureen was deselected as the MP by her local constituency Labour Party, with it citing, quote, an obsession with trivialities such as women's rights, and the local party chairman saying, she was elected as a working wife and mother. This business has blackened her image irredeemably. An appeal to the Labour National Executive saw her reinstated, ruling her deselection was unfair. At the next general election, Margaret Thatcher's 1979 landslide, she was narrowly defeated. Basically, the Northampton North Labour Party, when she was 89, 40 years after she'd lost her seat, she received this letter which she had framed. It was sitting on the wall. It meant a tremendous amount to her. Dear Maureen, I am writing on behalf of Northampton North Labour Party to express the party's appreciation of the very great contribution you made to the life of many people in the constituency from 1974 to 1979 when you served as RMP. It was notable that during the turbulent political times you helped many people locally and also stood up for some particularly disadvantaged communities nationally, especially in the area of women's rights. Some of the issues that you supported then, in particular in relation to sex workers and equalities, have since become more widely accepted. You also had to endure media scrutiny over your personal life, 
and stood out courageously for public recognition of same-sex relationships. The Labour Party in Northampton appreciates the pioneering role that you played for your total and lifelong commitment to our party. The party here wishes you all the very best and to your family. Yours sincerely, Dan Willis. I think it meant it meant a huge amount to her. It's the first time that anybody had really come forward to say we recognise what you did and, and thank you. Maureen remained an activist and active member in local government in Hackney in London before moving to the Lake District. She was still politically active well into her 80s. In 2015, Maureen and Babs got married. Oh, I think she was, she was tremendous that people could be out there. I'll, I'll tell you a story. I have some friends. Well, they had friends, a couple of friends who lived in, in the same village in the Lake District who uh, were not open about their relationship to women. And when my mother and Maureen got married... Uh, we went back to their house afterwards and they tied the knot after 40 years of living in sin. And one of these women phoned up and, about a window cleaner or something. And Maureen took the phone and she said, my darling, we've just got married. Do come over and join the celebration. And it was just wonderful because it was she was out there and these two women who had not been out there came to this party and these two girls turned up and just their eyes were, you could see their eyes were out on stalks and they had a very full life. And Maureen was very pleased with how things had gone. I don't think she ever patted herself on the back for being part of that, but I do. Maureen and Babs recently passed away, just months apart. Maureen was the most extraordinary mother. She just, to me and to my sister, she came into our lives. She sent us on camping holidays. She took us on holidays. She made us breakfast in the morning. I mean, she was just a very mothering, loving person to come through the door. And I feel extremely honoured and grateful that she happened to me. She was amazing. She's a very brave woman, very courageous, and, and very, very, a very, very good mother. Rugby, Warwickshire, 1984, and Chris Smith, the 32-year-old MP for Islington South and Finsbury, was heading to a rally to deliver a speech. Rugby Council had recently decided to remove sexual orientation from their equal opportunities policy. For the rally, Chris had written what he describes as a rather dull speech, but then decided to shake things up and opened it with... My name's Chris Smith. I'm the Labour MP for Islington South and Finsbury, and I'm gay. Now Chris was out to the world, and he braced for the reaction. I walked into Parliament on the Monday morning. Yes, the attitude had changed. People were looking at me differently, were uh, talking with me a bit differently. My favourite moment of all was uh, when uh, that afternoon I was uh, queuing in the members' tea room for a cup of tea and uh, Edwina Curry came marching in and said in a very loud voice, Chris, I hear you've come out. Well done. And turned on her heel and marched off. And uh, I could have hugged her at that point. Eight years after Maureen's experience, perhaps there was a feeling that in the corridors of power, Things had changed. To Chris, the attitude of the tabloids at the time didn't align with public opinion. 
I think um, the public mood, there was a lot of froth in the tabloid press uh, at the time about anything to do with lesbian or gay sexual orientation. But um, it's almost certainly the case that the what the tabloids were saying and talking about didn't reflect what ordinary people were really thinking. And it was really interesting to me After I'd come out, uh, we faced a general election um, uh, three years later in 1987. The SDP were using my sexual orientation as an argument on doorsteps as to why people should not vote for me. And I can uh, remember we trained all of our canvassers whenever they went out and uh, met a voter on the doorstep who raised this as an issue. We said, uh, you've got three lines of argument. Line number one is, isn't it good to have an MP who's honest for a change? Line number two, you know that Chris Smith works for everyone, no matter who or what they are. And line number three, if neither line one nor line two worked, was, you're not meaning to tell me you're prejudiced, are you? And no one in the entire course of the campaign had to get to line three. And uh, what became very obvious was that actually the ordinary voters of my constituency weren't particularly exercised about the fact that I was openly gay. They were much more exercised about what a government was going to do and uh, who was going to represent them in Parliament. Chris Smith was the only out gay MP in Parliament for nearly a decade. Matthew Paris had resolved to never actively lie about his sexuality when asked, but wasn't open about it. He did deliver something of a coded coming out during a debate in 1982, which nobody picked up. Crucially though, despite not being vocal about his sexuality at the time, he was still working for change with the Conservative Group for Homosexual Equality. I would use my time in politics to at least try to keep the flag flying and to do anything I could to uh, advance the cause of of homosexual equality. So I quickly became the vice president of our our party grouping and I, I would ask questions in Parliament and raise eyebrows, I imagine. But Matthew learnt early on that being open about his sexuality would have implications for his career. The then Secretary of State for Health and Social Security, Patrick Jenkin, a nice man, asked me if I would be his parliamentary private secretary, which is the kind of lowest lung rung on the, the ladder. And uh, I said I would be delighted. It was my, my first break, really. And then I was going to be speaking at the Oxford Union, proposing the motion that this house is glad to be gay. And I thought, I, I, I can't uh, allow what people think I am from what I am to diverge too far now or I'm going to get into serious difficulties later in my life and career. So I sent the speech that I had drafted for the Oxford Union to the Chief Whip. Um, The Chief Whip asked me in, um, gave me a whiskey. He was perfectly friendly about it and he said, I'm going to tell you something that I hardly told anybody. I haven't even told my wife. I certainly haven't told the local Conservative Association. Um, And I'm 
wouldn't dream of telling the newspapers. And, and I thought, my goodness, what's he going to say? And he said, I don't believe in God. I've never believed in God. But, you know, I go to the uh, church services in my constituency. I don't feel any need to stand up in the pews and shout, I don't believe in God. You see what I mean, he said. And, and that, that was all he said. And you, you can see what he was trying to say. Just shut up about it. Um, anyway, I made the speech to the Oxford Union and poor Patrick Jenkin, most embarrassed, took me aside and said he had to withdraw his offer, that I could be his um, PPS. I didn't ask him why, because I knew why. So then, in terms of actual numbers, how many gay MPs were there at that time? Oh, it was definitely in the tens. I, I, I think the twenties. I would have thought the twenties or the thirties. I, I think if I were to sit down with a list of them all, I could probably give you ten off the top of my head. And uh, for every ten that one knew about, there, there's always going to be another ten that one doesn't. Head along to a gay night at your local university and on the dance floor you'll probably find queer people of all political leanings. To be fair though, the enthusiasm for Swift and Gaga could be even more pronounced. And perhaps they're engaged in politics with a greater intensity than the average student. Run your eye along the candidates list at a hustings for the student election, for example, and sometimes it becomes a game of spot the straight. Today, across the political spectrum, there are 60 publicly out LGBT plus MPs from a total of 650 MPs in the House of Commons. The Times describes it as the gayest parliament in the world. And that, of course, doesn't include those who aren't publicly out. But does being queer make you political? It's a very deep question. Um, and I can think of two things. One is, um, is performance the love of performance, which was rather a gay thing. These days, there are no doubt plenty of gays who are not interested in performance at all. But in those days, homosexuality was a little bit associated with um, with making an exhibition of yourself and with, uh, with performance. And Disraeli is a very good example of that. The other is deeper, and that is that if there's something you you know about yourself that you know not to be wrong because it's you and you don't hate yourself and you hear other people talking about it as though it were some terrible mortal sin. It teaches you quite early in your life that the world is often wrong about very big things. And anything that teaches a boy or girl early in their life that the conventional wisdom can often be disastrously mistaken and teaches them perhaps sometimes to consider themselves a little bit of an outsider, to stand outside uh, the world of which they're part and look at it from the outside, then that, I think, can be a spur to independence of thought and to, to new ideas and to greatness of a kind. I, I do think that's the case in, with Disraeli in particular and may well have been with J.M. Keynes. Chris Bryant. I don't buy the argument that... Gay men love pageantry so much that they want to go to Parliament. I, I don't buy that. I do think that there are lots of societies historically where gay men in particular have had a special role, a distinct role, whether it's a, as a sort of priest or a shaman or, or whatever it may be. And I think sometimes if you're not going to have children, though that is obviously different now for lots of gay couples, maybe you would decide that if you wanted to make a difference in the world, your way of doing it was through party politics and therefore through Parliament. So does sexuality influence people's specific political leanings? 
I, I was certainly motivated into politics as opposed to the church where I started my 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 working life as a, a priest in the Church of England because of prejudice against homosexuality in the church and in politics because Mrs Thatcher even though I don't think she was actually homophobic, had introduced this homophobic legislation. And that, that did motivate me. That politicised me. Um, in a sense, it radicalised me. Now, maybe that's true for others, but in Parliament now, just because I'm gay and another MP is gay doesn't necessarily mean we're going to agree. Here's Chris Smith. I always thought when we were living and campaigning through the 1980s and um, we'd had all the issues around the pretty police in Earl's Court and the uh, uh, customs and excise raid on Gay's the Word bookshop and then we had Section 28 being um, introduced and uh, the Tories in the 1987 election, it was a deeply homophobic uh, campaign that they were waging nationally at that election. So I often wondered through that whole period, how on earth can someone be a self-respecting LGBT person and support the Conservatives, let alone be a Conservative MP? I think it's probably different now because uh, being gay is, is infinitely more mainstream now than it uh, was 30, 40 years ago. But back in those days, being gay was very much being an identifiable minority, being in a very real way discriminated against. Now, that ought to make you want to fight against the stigma and the discrimination. I think things have changed enormously now and um, because there isn't quite the same need to fight as there were. There are things to fight about, certainly, but there isn't quite the same imperative to do it. But it's different from what it was. Rob Dawson describes himself as queer and was a parliamentary assistant to Tory MPs for four years fresh out of university. Aged 27, he's of a different era. Yeah, it is a bit of a... It's a bit of a difficult one, kind of squaring the... maybe some of the more socially conservative aspects who aren't as au fait with the LGBT community with generally being an economic conservative. Um... I just, it's it's a broad church and you are going to get people in the same party who disagree with you on, on social matters and on identity politics, but you just, you, you also meet so many kind of like-minded people who share the same ideals of you as, you know, who are free marketeers, but are also LGBT and... If, if you if you shy away from being in the Conservative Party because you're gay, then nothing's going to get cha- nothing's going to change, or it you know could even get worse. So I'd say it's a kind of it's definitely a benefit to have um, people in the LGBT community kind of in the Conservative Party because it ensures it modernises. Justine Greening is in a relationship with a woman and was a Tory MP for nearly 15 years. She also served in David Cameron's cabinet. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think. Maybe if I'd been older than I am, as it were, and, and you'd had that whole Section 28, would I, I don't know whether I'd have joined the Tory party 
um, if it had been 10 or 15 years older and I'd, I'd have kind of almost seen the relevance to myself so much more clearly. But I, I do also feel like we're in a different era now where we made so much progress on a lot of those debates and discussions. And so I, I don't think it's as linked to people's political views, perhaps, as it used to be. I think the Conservatives have, um, or the Tory mind, has a slightly more relaxed attitude to enjoying yourself in life, uh, a slightly less puritanical attitude uh, towards sin. Um, And on the whole, the traditional attitude of, of Conservatives would have been that homosexuality is probably sinful, but it's quite fun for quite a few people and um, it's none of my business. Theoretically, at the heart of conservative ideals is individual freedom. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, you should just be able to live the way you want to live, love who you want to love. On the way on Pride in Politics, we ask what our LGBT plus politicians have experienced with the leaders of their age and how has the world changed for queer politicians? It's all about pride. Let's go! Virgin Radio Pride. Hello, I'm Callum MacDonald. You're listening to Pride in Politics on Virgin Radio Pride. In a bit, we'll look at how things have changed within the corridors of power for LGBT plus politicians. But first, let's head back to the 1980s. Westminster and gay MPs like Matthew Paris and Chris Smith were making efforts to push through LGBT plus reform. I helped to found the um, all-party parliamentary group on HIV and AIDS, which back in the 1980s did a lot of campaigning and arguing for proper education, proper health uh, uh, care, proper advice and counselling being available, information about how it could be prevented. We argued very strongly for all of that. and. Uh, eventually had some modest success but um, it took quite a long time before the government really stepped up to the plate. I felt that I needed to be part of the campaign. I was diagnosed myself with HIV in um, 1987 So the first few years, uh, this was something that was happening to gay people and gay friends. And then by the time we got to the late 1980s, it was something that was happening to me. Then the Sunday Times found out about Chris's HIV status. The paper honoured his request that he be allowed to reveal it on his own terms. I decided not to talk publicly about my HIV status at the outset, partly because it wasn't affecting my ability to do anything and um, one's health um, circumstances are uh, actually a very, really private thing. But um, I then um, decided that at some point I ought to say something Because uh, then uh, in 2005, uh, I remember Nelson Mandela, his son had died of AIDS and he made a speech at the funeral where he said, this is something we must talk about. We mustn't be ashamed of it. We must be open about this because that's the only way in which we will be able to counteract this horrible disease. So I sort of thought, well, Yep, I ought to do this. And um, 
I can remember there was a lovely moment. Uh, this was all happening on a, a, a Sunday. On the Monday, I walked into my office in the House of Commons and there was a note on my desk saying, please ring Mr Mandela with a phone number. And I phoned this number and there at the other end of the line was Nelson Mandela saying, I just wanted to say thank you and I'm really glad you did this. It's a huge help to all of us and well done, I'm really grateful. And that sort of made it worth it. But getting support for gay rights across the House was an uphill battle. Here's Matthew Paris. I think I can sum up the, the situation as concerns the attitudes of the House as a whole towards law reform. Nobody thought it was going to happen. And the reason is, is not that members of Parliament were particularly homophobic, no more, no, no less than anybody else. Uh, it was that members of Parliament were convinced that the British public wouldn't stand for anything like this and they were convinced that newspapers like the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph uh, would have their guts for garters if they were to stand up and, and, and speak out for, for, for gay rights. So th there was a general feeling that this was a, a politically a dead cause. It was a no-no. There was no point in going for it. I didn't get a lot of support um, within Parliament, except for two or three stalwarts who were heterosexual male Conservative MPs um, who were uh, bloody good, um, really good, kind of almost more outspoken than I was. Matthew thinks there was even some resistance from gay parliamentary members who hadn't yet come out, and perhaps never would. I could name um, about 10 MPs in my own party who were undoubtedly gay. On the whole, they wanted to steer clear of the issue because they were just nervous about what people would say about them. I suppose in those days in the 80s, I looked at um, Norman St. John Stevers, who was a minister in Mrs. Thatcher's government, a cabinet minister. Um, she certainly knew that he was gay. I looked at people like him. I looked at Charles Irving. I looked at uh, four or five of them, and I, I wished that they would give us a bit of support, but I understood very well why, why they didn't, and I, I, di I didn't judge them. I really didn't. Some of uh, the MPs that I knew to be gay but who weren't out did join the campaigns and uh, helped enormously and um, in one or two cases took a very prominent role in uh, things like the campaign against Section 28. There were a number of others that I knew to be gay who kept their heads very much under the parapet they didn't actively vote against equality. They simply kept quiet. And there were one or two who actively did vote against equality. And um, those were the people about whom my determination that enforced outing was never appropriate was tested uh, quite severely. The HIV-AIDS epidemic was devastating for the queer community, and when it came to equality, there was a significant backward step with Section 28. Put forward by Conservative backbenchers and then passed into law by the Conservative government, 
Section 28 prohibited the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. It effectively made any communication about homosexuality illegal in schools and other government-run services. As some elements of the press tried to stir up a fear of gay people using HIV scare stories, it felt like the community was both being targeted and made to feel invisible. Partly in response to the law, Matthew Paris, along with the likes of the actors Ian McKellen, Michael Cashman and Pam St. Clement, was one of the founders of the charity Stonewall in 1989. HIV, although it, uh, I think, um, aroused an awful lot of um, sympathy and understanding amongst MPs as, as it did amongst anybody in public life, I don't think that HIV did anything much for the cause of uh, either of coming out or of changing the law. Section 28 did. Uh, Section 28 was such a stupid and insulting thing that I think it, it aroused a certain defiance in people. I and mean, Chris Smith would be a good example of that. So Section 28... Yes, that began to change parliamentary attitudes towards gay law reform. But it's the plight of individual boys and girls which worries me most. Too often, our children don't get the education they need, the education they deserve. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. Thatcher's speech at the 1987 Tory party conference is indicative of the tone of government towards gay issues at the time. Although Section 28 had originated with the backbenchers, Thatcher's government supported it. So was Margaret Thatcher herself homophobic? Margaret Thatcher, though now seen as a slightly old-fashioned figure, was in fact a a modern woman of the 1950s, um, who lived on into the 1970s and and 80s. Um, She had married a divorcee. Uh, She had studied science at university. She had voted for the 1967 Homosexual Law Reform Act, which was, which remains the biggest step forward that, that gay people in Britain have ever made. And she would have regarded homosexuality as an unfortunate condition that uh, some people were un- unlucky enough to have to face. Um, not a matter for the police, uh, but uh, not a matter for, 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 for pride or congratulation either. She, she would have felt, did feel, that this was almost a medical thing where you feel sorry for somebody because of some condition that they have. Uh, you don't want to persecute them, but you, you certainly don't want to encourage others. Amidst the generally frustrating atmosphere of being a parliamentary backbencher, in 1986, Matthew quit life as an MP. This triggered what he describes as an inconvenient by-election. He took the bus from Clapham in London to number 10 for a cup of tea to apologise to the Prime Minister. And before he left her, he wanted to add one thing. When our conversation was finished, and it, it was pretty one-sided, he didn't get a word in, um, I said, there was one thing I wanted to say. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry, dear. I've just been talking all the time. What was it? And I said, well, I am, I am homosexual. And um, there's lots of my colleagues 
in in the party who are homosexual, and uh, there are an awful lot of voters in the country who would be conservative voters uh, who are homosexual, and I think we should show a friendlier face uh, than we do. And there was a pause, and then she put her hand on my wrist, and she said, there, that must have been very hard for you to say. (laughs) That was the end of the conversation. (laughs) And after that conversation, her parliamentary private secretary was there, asked if I would give him a list. <laughs> and I, I, I said, certainly, certainly not. I felt it would go straight to the whips. I've recently had a correspondence with his secretary. Uh, he, he is no longer alive. And, and she, uh, he was very religious. And, and she said, actually, he wouldn't have taken it to the whips. He just wanted to pray for them. <laughs> you can walk my path. You can wear my shoes. As political leadership changed in the 90s, there was a softening of the stance at the top. Chris Smith worked extensively with opposition leader John Smith and also soon-to-be Prime Minister Tony Blair. I think uh, John Smith, I I, uh, never sensed any hesitation at all about uh, endorsing the principle of equality. With Tony Blair... He did make that fantastic speech when he was Shadow Home Secretary, when uh, we were debating the equalisation of the age of consent. And he made a really powerful speech in, um, in the House of Commons, fully endorsing the principle of equality. And I'm absolutely sure he genuinely believed that equality was the thing that uh, we needed to try and aim for. When we came into government, I think initially that was tinged by a political nervousness um, about how ready the rest of the country was to accept this, um, which was why he didn't um, immediately say, let's go for equality on the age of consent. He, um, uh, he, he said, uh, uh, let's see what uh, a court case brought to the European court by two young gay men will do. And if uh, the British government is found to be in breach of uh, the European Convention on Human Rights, then we will uh, be able to take action. Uh, and that is indeed what happened. Two very brave young men took a case Um, They won it. Uh, The UK government was effectively told you have to bring in equality legislation. And then Tony Blair did and did so with enthusiasm. So how important is that leadership and approval from the Prime Minister? The top-down approval is uh, is absolutely needed, and uh, without Tony Blair deciding that this was something that Uh, the government had to do, it would have been much more difficult to get it through. Without David Cameron um, deciding that he wanted to achieve equal marriage, it would have been much more difficult to achieve. But um, it isn't just the top down that's needed, however, because I think one of the reasons why the Labour government from 97 through to 2010 was able to achieve so much in terms of legislating for equality. The reason it was able to do that was because public attitudes had changed. 
And I think over the course of the 80s and 90s, public attitudes changed not just because famous people like Ian McKellen or um, various MPs came out, but because lots of ordinary individual people came out in their workplace or in their family or in their neighbourhood or amongst their friends. And people just gradually began to realise that these um, people that had they, they'd thought from reading the tabloid press were people who'd come from the moon. Suddenly they realised these were ordinary, decent, genuine, wonderful people. And uh, that, I think, changed the social mood completely. Chris Bryant entered Parliament in Blair's second term in 2001 at a period of significant change and the progress that queer MPs could now push for felt like an important step forward. I remember on the night of my election in 2001, a very senior BBC journalist asked me, aren't you a bit too flamboyant for the Ronda? And what he meant was gay. He didn't have the courage to say it, but that's what he meant. And that was very much still the tone from 2001, bearing in mind that, of course, lots of things were still illegal in 2001. Importuning was still illegal. In other words, um, meeting a man in a bar whom you'd not met before and going home with them. That was still a criminal offence in 2001. Didn't change until the Labour government changed it. Uh, you, You couldn't adopt as a gay couple or as a gay man. You couldn't Uh, You could be sacked just for being gay in any line, any profession. So it's felt as if things have changed very, very rapidly. When we were in government, I was directly involved in helping get the uh, civil partnership legislation on the statute books. But I was also the first bill committee I sat on was for the sexual offences bill in 2003, which got rid of a lot of the old stupid offences, which have been on the statute books for hundreds of years. Um, and, um, and I feel quite proud of that. A raft of pro-LGBT plus legislation passed in that period. To mention a few of the changes, Section 28 was repealed and civil partnerships gave greater legal standing to non-heterosexual relationships. Same-sex couples gained the right to adopt and in 2005 came the ability to legally change your gender. With a fresh-faced leader in the form of David Cameron and after 13 years of new Labour, a slightly evolved Tory party, in coalition with the Lib Dems, picked up the baton when it came to the issue of same-sex marriage. Justine Greening worked with Cameron first-hand as part of the coalition cabinet and to her, Parliament was leading society rather than the other way this time. You've almost got where society is, almost where the sort of media narrative of some of these issues are and then you've got where parliament is you know trying to set some laws and i think the most powerful is is probably when parliament's able to just get in sync with a broader population lead it and have a responsible debate about issues that do matter to lots of people i just remember i felt like the same-sex marriage legislation was really the moment where you did kind of mainstream things, mainstream those relationships and put them on the same level. And I think when I I listened to why some of my colleagues were supporting it, um, I heard some different arguments maybe than I'd heard before, like 
the fact that actually family matters and relationships matter and committed relationships matter. And so I think we almost, it was the first time for me, I really felt things were in a, a very different place um, and a much better place to the ones perhaps where, you know, where things were when I'd first arrived as an MP. I felt like there was a much more mature debate. The eyes to the right, 400. The nose to the left, 175. So the eyes have it, the eyes have it. I think it's just something that, that someone like David Cameron thought was the right next step, literally. I, th I think he was just asking himself what his government would do to push things forward next. So what's it like to be LGBT plus in politics today? Justine tweeted in 2016, revealing that she was in a same-sex relationship. The reaction was very different to what we've already considered from decades earlier. I thought it was hugely positive. It was, you know, let's face it, it was something I'd really worried about and had just thought I need to be transparent about my relationship. But you're only human, I think, if you, if you don't feel a little anxious about, about the fact that it's a big change in a sense, uh, but no, it was massively positive. It's hard for um, MPs to be, you know, homophobic, for example, when some of their best mates are from the LGBT community. I mean, it really does force them to think, well, do I really think this actually? And the answer is generally, no, I don't really think it. Um, and that's the understanding piece that really matters for all of us. Now, I think Parliament has been on a journey and it's in a way better place now. Um, it's probably got some far, some some way to go, but it's it's kind of broadly, I had a thought, where a broader society is. Do you see what I mean? It, it's, it's done that catching up, which is what it needed to do. Just how gay is Westminster? Rob Dawson has spent the past few years wrapped up in the world of parliamentary and political staffers and the inner workings of Whitehall. Here's what he thinks. Yeah, so when I when I take into account the fact that I might have done a bit of self-selection here by m maybe generally hanging out with gay people more just inherently, there, there does seem to... I, I would say there's around 40%, maybe more, people working in Westminster and Whitehall who are in the LGBT community. So is politics far gayer than the real world? <laughs> it is all the better for it yeah yeah it is a good laugh it helps that quite a lot of the bars that are near Westminster it's just down the road from uh, London's gay village so you're not you don't exactly have to go far for a, a night out on the town whether it's players or heaven under Charing Cross like I say, every, everyone in there as well is kind of, it's a straight out of uni job. So there's a lot of people that are the same kind of age as you and it's often their first job. So there's a lot, you know, everyone's going through the same learning curve and um, yeah, it's a really supportive environment as well. So it's dance floors, poppers and gay bars in 2022. But what was going on in the 80s when all the gay politicians just had <clears throat> close friends? I wasn't part of any, any gay scene in the, the House of Commons. I, I knew those MPs who were brave enough, like Martin Fuller, the MP for, for Fulham, uh, who were brave enough to advance the cause. And uh, we were friends and we might ask each other around for, for dinner. And I, I, I knew that he knew other people who were gay. But that, that was the extent of it. 
I think there probably was a gay scene that I didn't know about. I suspect it may have involved the House of Commons refreshment department, which is basically the caterers and and the MPs responsible for controlling the House of Commons refreshment department. I, I heard... I heard stories, I heard rumours. I think I shouldn't name names, but uh, I did think there was a little bit of a scene there. Chris Smith. There was one um, parliamentary colleague uh, who was a very good friend, uh, sadly died um, uh, many years ago. He was huge fun, a really wonderful man, and uh, we did uh, spend quite a lot of time together in quite a number of different gay bars. Recent LGBT plus policy conversations have been oriented around the trans community. The response across the House to the Tory MP Jamie Wallace coming out was broadly warm, but trans visibility in politics remains low. Many trans people have seen the current political environment as hostile to their well-being and interests. With this in mind then, it poses the question, how connected to these issues are Westminster and cisgender queer politicians? I felt that one of the things that I'd been really proud of was the way in which Parliament discussed LGBT rights when it came to things like same-sex relationships and, and same-sex marriage. And I think, you know, I pay tribute to someone like Jamie Wallace, who's come out as almost this first trans MP, and I think the difference is... I think there's two differences. One is I think the whole LGBT community does better when it sticks together and realises that... It's one community, ultimately. It's got different components in it, but it's one community and it's got places and helped improve things by sticking together. The second thing is, yes, the tone of the debate and an understanding that how we talk about sensitive issues, particularly around trans rights, really matters, obviously, above all to people in the trans community. But I think... The differences with, with the, the debate around same-sex marriage is it was used as a way to bring people together. And I just think that was a, coming from a very different place to the debate that we, we were having on trans rights. And I think that's a real shame because I think it's not good for the trans community. Here's Chris Bryant. I absolutely hate the fact that some people want in politics to use trans rights as a means of driving a wedge between communities it's highly divisive, it's utterly despicable, and it makes me more fearful today as a gay man living in Britain than I was 10 years ago. I've never understood, you see, I, I, uh, this is me being a bit religious, but when Jesus was taken, was put up on the cross, they took his garment off him and they said it was a seamless garment, so they decided not to cut it up, but to draw lots for it. And I've always seen human rights as a seamless garment. It's not women's rights versus trans rights. We've got to be able to create a world in which all everybody's rights are respected. And I hate it when people try to set one set of people against another. Here's Jamie Wallace when prompted by Sky News about issues such as trans people in sport. Look, I am unashamedly going to champion the rights and freedoms of, of transgender and non-binary people. I don't think it would be helpful for me to start, you know, commenting on the particular nuances. So right now, I think what I'm going to do is just make it a priority to work with those people who want to detoxify this debate, help bring that about, because when we all sit down and have a meaningful discussion where we can transfer some understanding, then maybe we can start to, to, to get, you know, to, to have a proper discussion about some of these things. 
In secret and in public, queer politicians have always been there. Some pushed for change for their community, both visibly and behind the scenes. Their experiences have, in many cases, influenced what changes they pushed for. Many have had to deal with invasive tabloid press and scrutiny because of their sexuality. As a politician, the spotlight is bright. To varying degrees, the benches of the Commons and the public at large have changed their attitudes. They've also changed each other. It's worth saying, though, that trans people may not feel that their trailblazers have yet come. You can't go from not to 60 queer MPs in less than 50 years without those individuals making a mark. I'll leave the final words to Chris Smith and Justine Greening. It is rather wonderful to see the House of Commons teeming with uh, LGBT uh, members nowadays. Thinking back uh, 30, 40 years uh, when I was the only one, uh, there's a huge difference, and infinitely for the better. It is, I think, much easier for someone now to be open and honest about their sexual orientation or about their gender identity. It will be an interesting question as to whether someone could yet become Prime Minister being openly LGBT. I still think, as we've seen with like, women's rights and you know Roe v. Wade being overturned in, in the States and all of that, you know, there are some real lessons there, aren't there? Um, not least that you know, the danger if you, you don't keep pushing for, you know, equality of rights, then yeah, there's always another group that are going to push it backwards in the opposite direction. And, you know, and, and, and similarly, I do a lot of campaigning on social mobility. It's what I put so much of my time into now, levelling up, whatever you want to call it. I genuinely don't think you can be at your best if you're living in a society where you can't be yourself. This has been Pride in Politics. I'm Callum MacDonald. Produced by Bertie Moores for Audio Always on Virgin Radio Pride. The Virgin Radio Pridecast. Proudly supported by Disney Plus. Full of stories and love for all.